Welcome to Keep Them Wild. The podcast that brings you the latest wildlife news and discussions on wildlife conservation, ethics, and welfare. We're your hosts, Lorraine and Solon. Hey everyone, I'm Solon. And I'm Lorea, and thanks for joining us for our first episode of Keep Them Wild, the wildlife news podcast. So Solon and I are both wildlife biologists, and we've both worked in government wildlife work, in the private sector, and we love talking about all things wildlife, and I hope you enjoy this show. So Solon, do you want to tell the good people what this show is going to be about and give them a rough idea on how we're going to structure things? Yeah. This show will be released bi-weekly and will mainly be a roundup of the latest wildlife news. We're going to start off with themed episodes as we work to catch up on the last several months of wildlife news. Sometimes we'll stray from the news format and do topic deep dives, and we'll also have some interviews in the future as well. And another thing I'm really excited about is our mini episodes, which we're going to release at random to celebrate Animal Awareness Days. I actually made a spreadsheet of all the Animal Awareness Days I could find, and it turns out there are a lot of them so stay tuned for that uh, how how many are there i included 288 there's a little bit more but some of them weren't totally relevant to us uh, and a lot of them are on the same day so we'll try to cover as many as we can hopefully you know a handful of them each month and each year we'll just fill in the gaps and eventually you'll have a whole year's worth of wildlife and animal awareness days it might take a while, but it'll be a good time. Yeah, that that's a lot. I think we're doing this just a little after World Snake Day as well. Happy snakes. Yeah. Well, Larea, what are we going to be talking about today? The theme for this week is sea life updates. So the first few articles we have are on some of the major sea life catastrophes that have been going on in the U.S. So we're going to talk about the big fish die-off in Texas, the California sea lion die-off on the Pacific coast, and also the seal die-off on the East coast. And then we're going to move into some international ocean-related news, including the orca whale boat attacks. There was a new octopus nursery in Costa Rica and potentially a new species found. So we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about Iceland's new whale hunting policies. So like we said, we're going to be doing themed episodes, which means some of these wildlife events that have been covered in the news or maybe not so covered in the news might come from months back. And then we'll also try to cover what's going on right now. So the big fish die off that happened in Texas that took place over the weekend around June 10th and 11th. This was covered in tons of news sources because thousands of dead fish appeared on multiple beaches in Southeast Texas. So what happened is According to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department Kills and Spills team, the cause of this massive die-off was low dissolved oxygen, meaning the fish essentially suffocated. And they thought that what contributed to die-offs and this low dissolved oxygen event was a perfect storm of multiple factors. So the first factor was that the water was warm because it was very shallow and warm water is not ideal for fish because it tends to hold less oxygen. And this is especially true in shallow water because it heats up quicker. So therefore less dissolved oxygen. Likely this big school of fish found themselves deprived of oxygen because they were in this really warm, shallow water. It was in the summertime, so it was quite hot. 
The second factor was that the seas near these county beaches where the die-offs happened were very calm over the previous few weeks, meaning that there was fewer waves and winds and there was less mixing of the water. And so oxygen wasn't being redistributed. And so there was overall less dissolved oxygen because again, the water was really shallow and then we weren't getting cooler, more oxygen rich water coming from the deeper areas of the surrounding ocean. The third factor that contributed to the low dissolved oxygen was that the skies were cloudy. And this is an issue for the phytoplankton because they help produce oxygen in the water by using photosynthesis. And this process is driven by sunlight. So when there was less sun around, then the phytoplankton did less photosynthesizing and produced less oxygen. So these three factors combined created this perfect storm of low oxygen in the water and led to this mass suffocation event. Another thing that likely exacerbated the numbers of fish that were caught in this event was the species itself, because most of the fish found were Gulf menhaden, and they travel in very, very large schools, which explains why you would see a thousand fish in an area at the same time. So I was a little curious about these fish. And so I looked them up and the Gulf Menhaden reside throughout the Gulf of Mexico. They're also called pogi. They are about eight to 12 inches long. They have a dull silver and a greenish back. And apparently they have sharp fins because one of the articles from NPR News that I was reading to learn about this event uh, talked about how the department in charge of cleaning up the dead fish on the beach warned people to not go to the beach because they didn't want them to be exposed to the bacteria and to also not handle the fish because of their sharp spines, um, which I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny. I wonder how sharp the Manhattan actually are. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't I didn't know. I, I've never touched up. one, so I don't <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's uh pretty interesting though have you seen them you used to live kind of in that area no i i haven't in person um you know i never never spent a ton of time around the ocean there but it is interesting to see a die-off in the gulf that doesn't have to do with like the excess nutrients pouring in from the rivers nearby i feel like usually when you hear about die-offs in the gulf of mexico that's usually what they're from so this is interesting it seems to have a different uh different method to the die-off this time yeah i was actually really surprised because when i first saw the headline i was like oh this is another article talking about eutrophication which is exactly what you just described yeah and uh, so I was kind of surprised to learn more. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to cover it is that if you're just looking at the headlines, you might just assume that that was what was going on, but it was actually a different combination of factors. And some of the articles I read talked about how we might potentially see more events like this as ocean temperatures increase, you know, everything comes back to climate change and everyone wants to know when we see these catastrophic events if this is a one-off or if we're going to be seeing more of these in the future. And I guess at this point, it's hard to tell, like this might have just been like they described a perfect storm, but I could also see events like this increasing in the future as ocean temperatures also increase. Yeah. Like I could see this happening more, but I think that this is kind of somewhat of a one-off because it's not the same as the dead zones that you really get around Louisiana from the Mississippi river pouring in. To the Gulf of Mexico. So it's 
it's one of those things where it's like we could get more but like again if i just read the headline for this i would have think that it's a dead zone created by runoff um but you know as as you stated you know this wasn't the case it was just kind of the perfect storm so so it's interesting it's good to actually read full articles instead of just look at the headlines for that very reason <laughs> totally well, let's just get into what you're going to cover, which is the cause of the big California sea lion die-off that's happening right now. Yeah. So a large-scale algal bloom has hit Southern California, leading to the death of over 100 dolphins and 500 sea lions as of July 11th, 2023, with a large portion of those affected were pregnant sea lions. So while the algal blooms are naturally occurring, local sources, including Samuel Dover, the leader of the Channel Island Marine and Wildlife Institute, say this was the largest one in California. The reason the algal blooms are hazardous to marine animals is due to the harmful toxins they produce. So this toxin is known as domoic acid and it acts as a harmful neurotoxin that's produced by the diatom pseudonychia. This particular diatom is the one responsible for this algal bloom. So this process leads to the algal bloom and animal die-offs. It starts with the excess nutrients in the water in combination with more sunlight and warmer temperatures. As the proper mixture of nutrients and light and temperatures are reached, this creates an influx of growth in the diatoms. The diatoms are then consumed by fish and squids, which leads to the accumulation of toxins in those fish and squids. These fish are prey that are consumed by predators such as seals and dolphins. Then as the predators consume more and more fish or sometimes squids that have accumulated these toxins, the predators accumulate even larger quantities of that toxin, which is going to be the domoic acid. This process is referred to the biomagnification, where essentially the animals are just consuming more and more of these lower level of food chain animals, and then it accumulates in the higher predators in that area. So as these toxins accumulate in the dolphins and the sea lions, they will start to show signs of neurological effects, including disorientation, seizures, erratic behavior, foaming at the mouth, and even bulging eyes. And sadly, there's no antidote for this toxin, and the only way to help the animals through is supportive care. Dolphins and the sea lions, if they're rescued, they're put on fluids and anti-seizure medications in hopes that they will survive long enough for the demoic acid toxin to be flushed from their systems. The algal bloom should only be affecting wildlife and those consuming sea life. Um, so this is also something you'll hear about, you know, contaminating mussels and other bivalves people might be eating from the water um, because it also will accumulate in them. This is important to note still for humans um, because other algal blooms may affect humans and our pets. So even though this one's not directly affecting humans, it's important to pay attention to this kind of stuff. Whether you're planning on paying a visit to the ocean or maybe a nearby lake, make sure to check with your local parks office or water agencies to confirm there are no harmful algal blooms in that area. Because there's a lot of other ones out there. Typically, um, you'll hear about blue-green algae if you're in freshwater, which is actually a cyanobacteria. Um, so I think it's just important to pay attention to these things. So even if it's not going to directly harm you in this instance, it's important to still just look into it. So for this particular issue, if you see sick or injured wildlife and sea life, make sure to contact your local state or federal wildlife agency and don't approach the animals for both your safety and the animals. And remember, marine animals are protected and should not be approached under normal circumstances without the proper permitting. 
For all the time and efforts, I'd like to thank NOAA's West Coast Marine Mammal Stranding Network, the Southern California Coastal Observing System, the Channel Island Marine and Wildlife Institute, the Channel Island Cetacean Research Institute, as well as the California Harmful Algal Risk Mapping for continuing to forecast and map these algal blooms. If you do run into stranded marine wildlife, um, make sure to contact the West Coast Marine Mammal Stranding Network. That's the one that's organized by NOAA. Um, they're going to be the ones who are going to help direct you to the proper local agency to help out this wildlife. And that number is 1-866-767-6114. Um, so that's who you want to contact. Yeah. You have any questions about that, Laria? So the diatom is the algae, right? Correct. The, the pseudo Nietzsche. I guess I didn't realize that diatoms were considered algal. Um, so when I first read this, I was like, how, how are the diatom and the algae related? But the, the algal bloom is the overgrowth of the diatom, which creates domoic acid. Correct. Yeah. It, algal blooms are kind of interesting because a lot of times they're used when sometimes it's not actually algae, like I said, with the blue-green algae, because um, mm -hmm. that's, that's actually a cyanobacteria. So like, it's always important to look into when people say like, oh, there's a bunch of algae in this area, like, look, is it actually an algae or is it some type of bacterial growth? Ah, so algal bloom is not necessarily the most scientifically accurate way to describe these ocean overgrowth phenomenons because it might be cyanobacteria or in this case, a diatom. Yeah. Um, and then in some cases it is an algae. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks for explaining that. And I actually have another large die-off event. So uh, uplifting. I, I know. I guess I guess our theme is really less sea life <laughs> updates and more sea death updates. Yeah, we'll get to the happy bits near the end. Yeah, yeah. This is actually going back a whole year, but I noticed that articles were being published about this event in particular because a new scientific paper was recently published. So a new study from the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine, which is at Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts, is the first to connect the highly pathogenic avian influenza virus to a large-scale mortality event in mammals. And so the researchers at Tufts found that there was an outbreak of the avian influenza, and it was associated with the death of more than 330 New England Harbor and gray seals along the North Atlantic coast in June and July of 2022. So this was last year, but they just published their research this summer. And they figured out that this outbreak in this marine mammal population was connected to a big wave of avian influenza in the birds of the region. A lot of you have probably already heard a lot about avian flu, especially last year. It's abbreviated to HPAI or avian flu, and the viral strain is H5N1, and it's been responsible for about 60 million poultry deaths in the U.S. since October 2022, and there are similar numbers of poultry deaths in Europe as well. And the virus was known to have spilled over from birds to mammals before this study was released, such as in mink, foxes, bears. Um, but those were all very small localized events. And this study was the first to directly connect avian flu to a large scale mortality event in wild mammals. 
we're actually going to have an avian flu update episode in a couple of weeks that will cover some of these other instances of avian flu and wildlife. But for now, since we're talking about sea life, we're going to focus on these seals. The accepted knowledge is that avian flu is nearly 100% fatal for domestic and wild birds other than waterfowl, which seem to do a little bit better. So in this study from Tufts, the seals that tested positive for avian flu were deceased at the time of sampling or they died shortly after, and none of the animals that tested positive recovered. So there is some possibility that there were some asymptomatic or recovered cases that never came into the stranding networks, but of all the animals that had symptoms that were then tested, all tested positive. At the same time that the seal mortality event in New England was happening, researchers found that the virus was hitting goals in the area really hard, And they think that the goals and the other birds were responsible for transmitting the virus to the seals because they have environmental contact. They share the same water and the same shoreline. And the study also suggested that the seals may contract the virus if they come in contact with either a sick bird's excrement or contaminated water by that excrement, or if they prey upon infected birds, which they do do, (laughs) do do, which they do. They do do. And there's also issue with consuming their do do. Yeah, exactly. We are seven. (laughs) H5N1 avian flu has also a huge impact on wild birds, especially seabirds. And there's tons of places around the world that have experienced large die-offs. Recently in Peru, the virus killed around 6,000 pelicans, penguins, and gulls. And also Peru was hit in a very similar way where it started with seabirds and then it resulted in 3,500 sea lions dying from the virus. So this is just another instance that connects the transmission of the virus from seabirds into marine mammals. There were also reports in Canada of seal mortality along the St. Lawrence estuary. And then there was also about 700 seals that were reported along the Caspian Sea from news reports in Russia. Like I said, we're going to have an avian flu episode that talks more about the virus and about some of the other major populations of wildlife species that have been hit by the flu and what this might mean for the future and just the progression of this virus. But I really wanted to bring light to this situation in this episode because it just highlights all of the assaults that sea life and marine animals are facing right now from warm temperatures to algal blooms to viral infections. There's just a whole lot going on in the ocean right now. Definitely the high quantity of mortalities for the populations is incredibly, incredibly freaky. Um, you know, with a almost 100% kill rate for the seals. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty scary. Um, I also, I learned something new. Did you say penguins in Peru? Yeah. I didn't know Peru had penguins, so. Yeah, Peru has the Humboldt penguin, and they're found along the Pacific coast in northern Chile and Peru. And then there's, of course, the penguins in Argentina. Yeah, those, those I'm familiar with. Did you know about the jungle penguin in New Zealand? You know, I've heard of it, but I've never really like looked into it or looked at it. (laughs) There's a second season of Our Planet, one of the BBC David Attenborough documentaries. And 
one of the episodes talks about the jungle penguin and Mm. I highly recommend it'll put a smile on your face. They got some really amazing footage and just like penguins everywhere are they're just so amazing. Like the amount of miles they cover and like what they have to do on a day-to-day basis to reproduce and keep their young alive. But anyway, I highly recommend that because they're so cute and there's something just so silly about watching a penguin hop around through a forest. Penguins (laughs) are just great to watch. I remember one time I was watching a, um, it was kind of like the anthropomorphized documentary on penguins in South Africa and it was narrated by like Patton Oswalt or something <laughs> and it was just like it was wasn't pretty... it Morgan Freeman no there is one with Patton Oswalt okay. narrating there I'm sure there was one with Morgan Freeman too <laughs> but yeah it was it was pretty funny just like you know giving them all names and like going into the drama of penguin life which I think we can all enjoy Um, they're just they're just cute man yeah (laughs) are you guys ready for the next story i'm ready okay for our next story let's go international let's go to the iberian peninsula home of crystal blue waters warm weather yachts and killer whales so i don't really like the term killer whales i think it paints them in a bad light so i'm gonna go with orca whales instead And for those that are not familiar, the Iberian Peninsula, it consists of the south of France, Spain, and Portugal. The orca whale, Orcinus orca, is being blamed for damaging at least 12 vessels and sinking three ships. The orcas have been stealthily approaching boats without their usual high-pitched squeaks and damaging the rudders of boats and yachts, sometimes to the point of sinking the ships. It's unclear as to why the orcas are doing this. Some biologists say it's play. Some say they like to feel the rudder. And others say it could be due to past traumas that the orcas have endured from boats. Since 2020, approximately 500 orcas have had negative encounters with boats and yachts. It has been brought up that this could be some type of revenge, but many biologists are skeptical. And this is largely because in the Pacific Ocean, orcas have been heavily targeted and removed from the wild to be placed in aquariums. And retaliation wasn't observed in any of the orcas in the Pacific. Also, as a quick aside, don't support aquariums that actively target the removal of wild animals out of their habitat. This also could be what's referred to as a fad among orcas, which is a combination of play, curiosity, and maybe even them trying to be a little bit trendy. (laughs) A more prominent fad of orcas that people might be familiar with is when orcas were wearing salmon hats. So this was probably their most popular trend back in the 80s. And essentially orcas, they were swimming to the surface and they would take the salmon from their mouth and try to like flop them onto their head. I think it was like 1987. And the orcas, yeah, they would just flop them on their head and they don't know why they're doing it. There didn't seem to be any particular reason, but it kind of spread from one orca to another and they all were doing this in this one particular pod. I mean, do it in your cool, brah. Yeah, exactly. So although we don't know exactly why the orcas are doing this to the boats and yachts, we do know that this is intentional and that as humans, we need to do better and we need to stop harming sea life so much. The boating industry is incredibly damaging to most sea life, particularly whales, just due to the loud noises alone. It really disrupts their communication and it is just overall a huge nuisance to them. It's a nuisance to their breeding. So we just need to help protect our sea life out there. Um, anyway, I don't know. Should we keep going? 
So some scientists working off the coast of Costa Rica said they've discovered the world's fourth known octopus nursery. And apparently there are three other octopus nurseries that have been discovered. There's one off the coast of Canada, um, California, and now there have been two discovered in Costa Rica. So there was an 18-person scientific team called the Octopus Odyssey. And in addition to discovering this fourth octopus nursery, they think they may have also found a new species of octopus. The primary target of this expedition was the Dorado outcrop. And that's where that first octopus nursery that they call the Octopus Garden was first discovered off the coast of Costa Rica in 2013. These nurseries are really interesting because many octopuses are solitary creatures. And when they lay their eggs, they try to attach them to hard surfaces, and then they brood and protect their developing babies from predators. So mothers regularly blow water on the eggs to oxygenate them, and then they prevent algae and fungi from taking over. Once the eggs hatch, the juveniles swim away and they start a new life. And then the mother typically dies soon after that because all of her energetic resources are gone into her reproduction. So this is why these octopus nurseries are so interesting and unique because there are many brooding octopuses found in the same area and it's quite crowded. So some wonder if this is a social gathering, but because octopuses need hard surfaces to lay their eggs and the deep ocean, especially in that area, is mostly comprised of soft and squishy mud, that this might be the only good rocky place for them to lay their eggs. Additionally, the Dorado outcrop has several hydrothermal vents that spew warm water and are likely attractive to some of these octopus moms. And the scientists on this expedition theorize that the warmer water probably benefits the eggs well and possibly helps the mothers brood more quickly. Over the course of the 19-day expedition, the team observed three different species of octopuses and potentially one new member of the genus Musooctopus, and that is Muso with two U's, like vacuum. It's going to take some additional research, such as unfortunately, capturing a specimen and testing its DNA to know for sure whether this is a distinct species. But based on its morphology, they think that it is. So in addition to potentially finding this new species and to identifying an octopus nursery, the Octopus Odyssey team also visited five unexplored seamounts. And seamounts are undersea mountains that are also home to hydrothermal vents. And one of them was totally covered in sea cucumbers. And another one featured a bunch of black coral. And they also saw skate embryos that were near the hydrothermal vents. So it's likely that because of the hydrothermal vents and just that it's a rock outcropping in a, a big sandy, muddy ocean floor, that these are big biodiversity hotspots. I think it's really important that we find as many of these biodiversity hotspots as possible because then we can target our protection policies and protection mechanisms to target these specific areas. And I love that we're still exploring and learning about the planet and especially about the ocean because it has until recently been pretty unexplored. I think it'd be really cool too if this was a new species of octopus because there are only about 300 known species of octopus. So finding one more wouldn't be insignificant at all. There's some good news. Science is happening. There's 
lots more to discover out there. Octopuses are super cool. I love them. And that's all I got on that one. Yeah. No, I love them too. It's a, uh, there's, there was a really good, like a uh, super heartfelt documentary I watched on octopuses or on a particular octopus. Can't remember what it was called though. That one about the guy who's snorkeling mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Oh, it was called my octopus teacher. That's right. Anyway, I don't know. Should we keep going? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So this year, Iceland canceled the whale hunts due to animal welfare concerns. Iceland is one of the few countries among Japan and Norway that still conducts whale hunts. However, on June 20th, Swandis Swadestadr, the country's Minister of Food and Agriculture and Fisheries, announced that the whale hunt was postponed because the fishing method used when hunting large whales does not comply with the law on animal welfare. The whales in Icelandic hunts often do not die immediately, and with some whales taking over two hours to die... So this is not going to be in compliance with the animal welfare laws of Iceland. Technically, the hunt is only temporarily suspended until August 31st, but whaling season also typically ends at the start of September. And currently, there's only one company, Ulvar, that holds a license to hunt whales while in Iceland and their license will expire at the end of 2023. Arne Führenhan, founder of Hard to Port, a German organization that has worked to end the Icelandic whale hunt, says the news surprised him. I was standing in front of one of the whaling ships when I received the news, Führenhan currently in Iceland, told Manga Bay by phone. It was very, very special and emotional moment because so many people have put a lot of energy over the past few months to get to this outcome. This year, Iceland was set to kill around 200 fin whales Balanoptera physalis, considered vulnerable to extinction by the Global Conservation Authority, IUCN. Even though this is not a permanent outcome at this point, I think we're well on the way to ending hunts in Iceland because I don't believe they'll be able to meet the animal welfare criteria that is currently listed in Iceland, and they definitely won't be able to do so consistently. On average, I think they missed their point by 41% when they had animal welfare groups on board of the whaling ship. So this is something where it's just probably not feasible for whaling to continue if they continue to acknowledge the animal welfare concerns in Iceland. So overall, I think that this is, you know, really positive. Hopefully this will become permanent. And then there will only be two countries left that continue whaling in the world. Wow. Only two countries left. That's, that's progress. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's super expensive to continue anyway, because like the last organization in Iceland, they actually went out of business just for financial reasons, just because, you know, this isn't something you're going to see like individuals aren't going to be out there whaling. It's got to be these big organizations that are taking on whaling. So really like if the countries can impose these laws, it's not something that you're really going to see like a lot of poachers out there doing just because it takes such huge and expensive trips that you really need like a large company to follow through with. This. this is great news because over the last hundred years or so, commercial whaling has been responsible for the drastic declines in whale populations that have brought so many whale species to the brink of extinction. And the fact that whaling is no longer whale's biggest problem is a huge conservation success and something we should all really be celebrating. But I recently listened to an interview featuring Dr. Michael Moore, who is a wildlife veterinarian that specializes in and advocates for the North Atlantic right whale specifically. And he wrote a book called We Are All Whalers, in which he talks about how boat strikes mainly from cargo ships and entanglements in fishing gear, as well as boat noise, which interfere in reproduction, migration, and whale communication, 
are now the biggest drivers of continued population declines. And it just made me really think about these ways in which we are all contributing to the decline in whale populations, especially as we continue to demand goods that are produced overseas and need to be shipped in these big ocean liners. So I think this is a topic for another episode, and perhaps we could even have Dr. Moore on the podcast at some point. But in the meantime, I really encourage anyone who's interested in learning more about the threats whales still face that you check out his book, We Are All Whalers. Or for a shorter read, he's also published several articles, and one of them is called How We All Kill Whales, and it it talks about these issues that he brings up in this interview and also in the book that he wrote. Like I said before, Overall, this news story is great news, Uh, but if you want a little bit more, I suggest you check him and his work out. I think that's all we have. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode. Like Solon said in the beginning, we release a new episode every other week. And in our next episode, we're going to be covering some important wildlife legislation updates in the U.S. So you're definitely going to want to check that out to see what kind of laws and policies are being made. That's right. Cool. Well, thanks, everyone. Talk to you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Keep Them Wild. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. Keep Them Wild is an outreach initiative of Adventurers for Animals. If you have suggestions on stories, topics, and content, please email us at adventurersforanimals at gmail.com.